I am Jackie Miller, high conflict divorce coach and consultant and host of this podcast, Out of Crazy Town, your guide to divorcing a narcissist. I have an incredibly special guest on this episode. His name is James Pete. James is a certified fraud examiner or CFE, as well as a forensic accountant and a private investigator. James is seeing the need for fraud examiners more and more in high conflict divorce cases where the finances are complicated and one party is not being honest. Please listen in as James explains why you may need a fraud examiner in a financially complicated divorce. Hello, James P. Welcome to the podcast, Out of Crazy Town, Your Guide to Divorcing a Narcissist. I'm super excited to have you here today. Oh, glad to be here, Jackie. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, I you know heard about you because I went through a high-conflict divorce uh, training program, and you were a presenter there, and I almost cried <laughs> when I heard your presentation because I could have used you a few years ago. But with that being said, I knew I had to bring you to a wider audience and let them know as well. Oh, I'm glad to be there. Yeah, as I uh, had mentioned to you off screen, you know, one of the things I do is the training director for the Pacific Northwest chapter of the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. And so part of that is we do a lot of outreach. And part of that outreach was developing that uh, forensic accounting fraud investigation training for the high conflict divorce case, because there are so many people out there that we feel need the kinds of services that we can offer, uh, but are completely unaware of them. Absolutely. And it's the waters are so muddied. And there were things even having been through what I went through and I had a forensic accountant and I, but I was still shocked at what I didn't know just from your presentation. And so I want to clear a lot of that up today and I'll ask you specific questions, but um, first of all, let me just jump in and start this way. Would you explain to us what certified fraud examiner, what is it exactly? Well, a certified fraud examiner is somebody who is a first off member of the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. And it's a global organization that last time I checked was somewhere around 90,000 CFEs. Uh, and to be one, goes. it's a multi-step process. The first thing is you have to have a college degree or a lot of work experience. You have to have at least two years in uh, fraud or fraud-related activity, if you will. You know, that could be being a detective doing fraud investigations. You could be in a credit card company preventing fraud. You could be working at a company that does background checks to make sure people aren't committing fraud. You know, it's a whole variety of things. And what was interesting is that even though I had been a police officer, none of that counted because they didn't consider it to be related to fraud. So it's a specific um, fraud um, experience that you have to have. Right. And so just being a cop doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be eligible to be a CFE. Uh, on top of that, uh, you have to actually have three letters of character reference. And the final uh, part of it is that you actually have to pass an exam uh, and it's broken down into things such as fraud prevention, fraud investigations, finance, and the legal components of fraud. So you would have to know all sorts of interesting arcane things that most people don't know, such as when can you pull a credit report on somebody? Well, if you're doing a fraud investigation, you can't. You know, when can you actually search bank records, you know, under certain conditions, fraud being one of them. So the legal component, you know, you have to know the difference between civil and legal doesn't break it down into actual laws, you know, such as uh, wire <laughs> fraud, for example. Okay. 
and certain laws that are very specific, such as the Fair Credit Reporting Act and things like that. So once you pass all four parts of that exam, and if you've met all the other conditions, you're awarded the CFE designation. Okay. And as the training director of the Pacific Northwest chapter of the ACFE, I'm the one responsible for setting up all that training. So we bring in monthly speakers who talk about different components of fraud. Two months ago, I actually went in and gave a talk on high conflict divorce cases and investigative accounting. Wow. So we got more people trained and I uh, have an article in with the ACFE's fraud magazine on this concept. Hopefully we're going to have more CFEs who are going to get more training in high conflict divorce cases so that clients who are reaching out to high conflict divorce coaches such as yourself mm -hmm. will have local resources. Fantastic. You know, right now everybody knows about James. Right. You know, nobody knows who their local one is. Right. I was going to ask you that a little bit closer to the end, just, you know, so people can have an idea if there is somebody that they can um, ask if, you know, when your, your card is full <laughs> and you can't take it. And <laughs> I'm glad that you touched on some of the things that you already do, because obviously you are a certified fraud examiner, but you're also a forensic accountant and licensed as a private investigator in the state of Washington. And as you mentioned, you were both a federal and local law enforcement officer. And that, you know, you have multiple publications, I know. And like you said, I know that you do a lot of training for continuing professional education. And it looks like um, that's for other CFEs, for auditors, for private investigators, for continuing legal education to attorneys. So I know that you are the expert of experts. And I'm just, again, I'm just so happy that you came on today. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. I feel kind of like big headed now. <laughs> <laughs> you should, you should. <laughs> Well, and you know what, I'm speaking of your background with certified fraud examiner and a forensic accountant. When I was watching your presentation, this is what kind of bowled me over because you sort of had given some examples of, you know, here's a situation where you don't need a forensic accountant, you need a CFE. And I was like, you know, head slap. I was like, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. So can you kind of tell us the difference between the two? Well, let me start off with saying that forensic just means for the court, you know, and a lot of people think forensic is some sort of mysterious thing, and it's really not. It's just, it means for the court. And so a forensic accountant is basically anybody who says, I'm an accountant and I've had at least one case go to court. So I am now a forensic accountant. Wow. Now, yeah. And a fraud investigator is somebody who actually investigates fraud. Now that could be somebody who works at a credit card company where they're investigating credit card fraud, uh, or it could be a police detective who is investigating a variety of frauds, or it could be a certified fraud examiner uh, who is a licensed private investigator. Usually uh, most states require that a uh, person looking into financial matters of other people be a private investigator. They could be investigating all sorts of things. I mean, to give you an example, I didn't really get into investigating divorces uh, and doing forensic accounting on divorces or investigative accounting, as we actually refer to it as, until a couple of years ago when I was asked by a person who is now a, a high conflict divorce coach to help her with her divorce. Mm. Up to that point, I had been working mainly with businesses and government. I mean, to give you an example, I had one case of document destruction that I was actually brought in to investigate possible fraud, and it turned into a document destruction case, which is a felony in Washington state and led to the conviction of the city manager, which is only the third time in state history that's ever happened. I also have another case that uh, we sent to the FBI where one person has already pled guilty to wire fraud and another person is facing eight counts of wire fraud. I was actually supposed to be in court yesterday, but things happen, so it'll be in May. Sure. But the biggest difference is that while a forensic accountant will look at the books and the checkbooks and you know whatever bank statements they get a hold of, they don't necessarily 
have the ability to go beyond that. They don't have the ability to reach out to information brokers and request, hey, can you do a nationwide search of all you know banks to see if this person has a bank account there or a brokerage account? Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have the knowledge base or the access to things such as doing background investigations, looking up businesses throughout the country, finding out, you know, does this person actually run a business in this country or in the state, I should say. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, they could be running a company called ABC Services and be listed as one of the minor governors. If they don't list it on the documentation, maybe the forensic accountant won't even look at that. Yep. So a fraud investigator will dig deeper. They're going to look for everything. They're going to say, how many vehicles does this person own? Do they own vessels? How much real estate do they own? Where do they own it? Not just looking at bank records. So that's the biggest difference, I would say, is that a forensic accountant will look at whatever bank statements or financial records or accounting software that they are presented with. Mm -hmm. They don't dig further. And I was just going to say, I I came to that conclusion and that definition of it's like, they can only sort of interpret whatever you can give them. But if you're like, this is all I have, but I know there's so much more. I know it. I know it. I know it. I just don't have it in my hands and I can't get it. How can you help me prove that there's more to it? And go get it. It's, you know, kind of that's where their expertise stop. And at least in my experience and some clients that I have as well. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much where it's going to stop. You know, some CPAs who are good at investigative accounting, but not completely looking at fraud are those who have the CFF designation, the certified financial forensics Mm. designation on top of their CPA. So if you're going to hire a CPA, make sure that they have that designation. If you're going to hire a CPA, I would look for one who actually has the CFE designation because it's a little different. It's more Mm -hmm. fraud focused, you know, while the other one is, you know, focused on dealing with forensic stuff for the, for the court. Right again, you know, doing a business valuation, you know, saying how much this person actually earns in a month. So how much should be applied for child support or alimony or doing a division between separate versus community property. And, you know, I was wondering if you could go into more specifics where someone in a high conflict divorce might use you or someone like you, because in my experience, like one of the first things I'll ask clients is, okay, let's assume the husband's been the primary breadwinner. And I'll say, is he a W2 guy? Yes. Okay. No, he owns, he's he's an entrepreneur. He has lots of different businesses. He has a couple different business partners. I've never really had any eyes on the finances. And I'm like, oh no. Okay. (laughs) This is another conversation. So am I right in assuming that when I talk to clients? Very much so. Yeah. The the W-2 ones are easy. You just, you take a look at what the W-2 says, you take a look at the pay stubs and you see where the money's going. And if it goes into a bank account that the, uh, you know, financially dominant spouse maintains, you know, you get access to it, you know, and you can do that either through the subpoena process or you can ask for it uh, through discovery, or you can actually um, somehow convince them to agree to release all financial information by having them sign a letter stating as such that, you know, the fraud investigator can present to the financial institution. Institutions. Mm. The odds oh. of that latter part happening are slim, and in a high conflict divorce case, so are the others. That scenario doesn't yeah, happen no. in high conflict. No, no. <laughs> no, this is where subpoenas are required. And unfortunately, subpoenas can get expensive. And they and you don't just roll all subpoenas out at once because what will happen is that forensic uh, accountant or the CFE or the investigative accountant will get the statements that they want. And then they'll be like, oh, look, here's a trail that leads this way. Or 
or at least this way. You know, they'll see a check made out to a company and they're like, huh, I wonder who owns this company. So they go in and they look on the Secretary of State webpage. Oh, it's owned by the uh, client soon to be spouse, ex-spouse. Interesting. Okay. So then you serve a subpoena on the bank that that went into and it just builds on itself. Yeah. It's a process. When you, yeah. And when you're getting into the businesses, especially when somebody has multiple businesses, magnify that tenfold easily because part of what the fraud examiner or the forensic accountant is going to want is going to be the business records. And they're going to want those business accounting records in the original digital native format. You do not want paper records. Let me emphasize that. You do not want paper records. And the reason for that is a little computer term called GIGO, which is garbage in, garbage out. Mm. You know, if you're given paper records, they can easily be manipulated. Yep. But if, if you give me the QuickBook files uh, in its native format, I can find out all sorts of interesting things. Wow. And so what kind of interesting things can you find out when you get those digital files? Well, the one thing I like to find out is all the entries that have either been modified or deleted. Ah. Most people are unaware aware that there's a function in QuickBooks called audit trail, which even if you modify or delete a transaction, it is still in the record. And I can pull those up. For example, the case that went to the FBI, one of the things that I discovered was that the bookkeeper involved had deleted a bunch of entries to payments to Wells Fargo, which I found out went to mortgage payments on Mm. a home that she owned. Yeah. And because they had also opened up a bank account in a, uh, that they shouldn't have. And because of that, we were able to get the bank statements and verify all this stuff. And hence the FBI is now playing prosecutorial games with her. Wow. Well, I I know that especially uh, as we just pointed out, you know, you have your W2 person versus your, you know, entrepreneur on my own businesses person. And one thing that tends to happen in almost every case I'm involved in is the sudden income deficit syndrome. And all of the sudden, the primary income earning spouse doesn't make any income miraculously as soon as divorce was filed. Isn't it shocking the percentage of people who all of a sudden make no money when when they're their primary income earner? It just blows me away. And for some reason, they seem to think that they'll be able to hide it. Oh my gosh, it's maddening. And I I think the thing is, especially when so many people are trying to stay out of court and it's so expensive, you know, and you you do want to get the help you want to know. Part of you, yes, wants to settle. This is the dilemma I see clients in. They want to settle. They want this over with. They don't want to continue on. And the other side just will not give up information. And then, like you said, you know, you ask nicely, of course, they don't give it. Then you're forced to start doing subpoenas and then the trail leads somewhere else and get more subpoenas. And I always have this conversation. Okay. You kind of have to decide when you have enough information to just settle, but it's really hard because you're like, but I just know there's so much more out there that I don't know. And these people are playing games. Well, sorry, I'm not making any income anymore. It just blows me away. Um, But it's, it's, and that's where I think people are really stuck They're like, I really need someone to help me understand really what the financial landscape is. This is where doing what's called a lifestyle analysis also comes in handy, which is generally speaking, somebody will say, I don't have any money coming in. Okay, let me see your bank statements. And let's say they provide the bank statements and they provide their credit card statements, which you always want. And then you start looking at it going, interesting. Let's see now, you have a mortgage that you're paying this much on, you're paying this much on your credit cards, but you only have this much money coming in. So where is that money that you're with coming from. That's where they get stuck. You find out they're getting a lot of cash payments and you start to subpoena the companies that you know, the vendors that they have, if, as it were. And that's where you start recovering more information. I have one case that I hopefully just wrapped up 
where the husband was saying, my income's gone. I don't have any business. Okay, well, we subpoenaed this one of his vendors. And it's like, oh, look at all these checks that you they've been issued to you. Why do you have cash going into these accounts if you don't have any business? Mm. So this is basically finding out these kinds of things. And let me ask you if, if you're able to ever um, help in this arena. I see a lot of the earner have their business withhold their bonus or withhold their, you know, somehow part of their check or just have it go somewhere else until the divorce is final. Are you ever successful in sort of figuring that out? Sometimes we are. I'll give you another example, which is that this husband said he wasn't making any money. Well, part of his business was flipping houses. And so knowing this, I was doing searches on properties in the areas that he worked in. And sure enough, all of a sudden I see this tax affidavit pop up and it's like, oh, he just made like a half a million dollars here. So of course, uh, well, that one's still in uh, arbitration, but the fact is we were able to identify that money coming in that he was trying to hide. Now, there's another guy who has all these dividends that he was issued through these company stock that he was able to purchase. Unfortunately, they're all in Canada, uh -huh. which makes it really difficult. But fortunately, the wife happened to get a copy of it. We managed to uh, subpoena the business because he was, in this case, a W-2 earner. And so based on his subpoena we got to the company, we were able to determine how many shares that he purchased. And I broke it down between separate and community property. Based on those shares, we were able to determine what the payout was on dividends for every uh, year, you know, because they also provided the payout per share. And because it was in Canada, I had to go in there and convert it all to U.S. dollars. So, wow. but trying to track it down. I mean, if you can't find the exact money, we go with the lifestyle analysis and that's suitable for the court. Okay. And you had uh, another thing that I'd seen in your presentation was when you gave a list of red flags for when you might need a fraud investigator. <laughs> Would you talk about those? I love that list. Because okay. again, it made yeah, me I cry. I had to print that off. <laughs> there are so many red flags uh, when it comes to that. Okay. Uh, the first one is the spouse is usually becoming very protective of the male. And the reason for that is is if they don't have mail going to a private PO box, it's usually bank statements and brokerage statements and credit card statements. And they're trying to hide exactly what's going on mm -hmm. with the finance. So if the spouse is all of a sudden becoming rather protective about collecting the mail, you may have a red flag. The second one is hiding statements and uh, missing mail. Basically, every American, for all intents and purposes, has a bank account of some sort or a credit card account. And if they're married, they have mortgage statements. Uh, if they're smart enough to actually invest for the future, they have brokerage statements. You know, If you don't see those statements coming across the table, you may have a red flag. Mm. Literally, you should be able to see bank, credit card statements, brokerage statements, and mortgage statements. Every month, a mortgage statement is sent. More and more, though, we're moving to an online environment. Yeah, I was just going to ask and about that. Which makes it a little difficult, especially if the spouse has set things up in their name only. Right. Which makes it difficult. Yeah. Uh, in yeah. that case, usually what I recommend doing is basically accessing the computer of your spouse. You know, yeah. as community property, that's completely legal. Yeah. You know, you can look at whatever your spouse has. If you need to bring in a digital forensics expert, I recommend talking to your attorney first. You know, but having one brought in and actually go through those and seeing where accounts exist. If you find out where accounts exist and they're not sharing and you're going through a divorce, then it's time to issue subpoenas. 
Another thing to look out for are loans, uh, usually loans to family and friends. Oh, I loaned Billy Bob $500. I loaned you know, Joe Bob you know, $2,000 because his yes. car broke down. Usually what's happening there is that, yes, they're loaning the money. Now that money's gone. There's no expectation of repayment until after the divorce. Yep. <laughs> so keep all that in mind. That's all money that's yours. Um, Absolutely. Another thing are unexplained purchases and uh, cash withdrawals. You know, why are you buying these jewelry? Usually what we like to do is something, a uh, quick analysis called ben Benford's Law, which basically states that the last digits have a declining number of appearances as they go from one through nine. So one will have usually the greater number of uh, appearances in a system of numbers, if you will, a bank account. Okay. So if you're writing like a $1,000 check or right. a $2,000 check or something like that, you're typically going to see that the numbers uh, usually starting with one or greater ah, than the number starting with two. That makes until sense. Until finally you get down to nine when it's, you know, it's sort of like a ski jump where it goes down sharply, then levels out. Okay. Trying to describe that verbally when I'm not good at this is pretty difficult. <laughs> no, I completely get <laughs> but, it. But no, that makes sense. Yes, you're going to see uh, um, yeah. amounts in the 1,000s and 2,000s more than you are in the 8,000s or 9,000s, statistically so speaking. When all of a sudden, yes, thank you. And so when all of a sudden you see a lot of uh, fives and sixes popping up in this analysis, you go, hmm, what's going on here? I do, I do this as every case basically, okay. you know, trying to ensure I cover all my bases. And usually you're looking for very unusual purchases. Sure. And we'll get a little bit further into that when we get into credit cards, because that's where the real activity takes place. Okay. Another big flag is when you see increased computer security, you know, such as refusing to share passwords. If they're clearing the browser history, usually what will happen is they'll be hiding the screen from view. You know, for example, let's say that a spouse is cheating and they're texting to their uh, lover. You know, when you come up to walk up to them, they'll turn around so you can't see what's on the screen. Mm -hmm. That is a big red flag. You know, another red flag typically, not always, but typically is having separate uh, personal bank accounts. Yeah. That's not always. For example, my wife and I have personal separate bank accounts. Uh, she had one that was set up before we got married, and I had one set up at the Washington State Employee Credit Union with the whole purpose being to fund our vacations. For you sure. Know, so all my right. money went in there. Right. It's not always a um, red flag, but it sometimes is. What's really a red flag is if the spouse removes the other spouse from the account. All of a sudden, you're no longer getting bank statements and you don't have access to the account. That's a huge red flag. Sure. You know. Uh, um, another one is credit cards. Sometimes spouses will take credit cards out in their spouse's names. Run a credit check on yourself and you can do those free. Just go to um, Experian, Equifax or TransUnion and you can access one run for free every year from each one of those. Awesome. And by doing that, you can say, do I have any credit cards I don't know about? You know, or maybe there are unknown credit cards out there. You know, the spouse is taken out. You know, those are red flags. You know, a good marriage will usually involve the couple talking about their finances and keeping each other informed. Right. Not always, but usually. Documents. Let's say they want you to sign a document real fast. <laughs> you know, usually the big yes. one is the... Uh, 1040. Here, honey, we need to get this into the CPA this morning, right now. You know, you haven't even had your first cup of coffee yet. And you're like, what? You know, so here, sign, sign. Uh, okay. You trust uh, this person. That's your spouse. I wish I didn't know what you were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And right. so next thing you know, signing these documents, which go into the IRS, which if you lie is a felony. Yeah. 
Well, you know, as I refer back to the uh, dividends issued in Canada, the spouse didn't know about them. Wow. They're not on the 1040s. So okay. now that spouse is having to work with a CPA who is also a former IRS um, criminal investigator. Okay. So if you have a tax issue, and this I cannot emphasize enough, you should not deal just with your CFE or deal with your CPA. You want to work with a CPA slash attorney who has also been a criminal investigator with the IRS. Wow. They will have the best information to help you as you go through the jungle that you're going to face with that. And it is nasty. It is ugly. And you're criminally liable. Yes. And this is going off on another tangent. We don't have to go there. But um, also, you're right, because post uh, figuring all this out and understanding maybe there's potential fraud in your tax returns, et cetera, and you had no eyes on it for years, um, you can also potentially file a um, innocent spousal relief, like with the IRS, correct? That sort of absolves you, hopefully, of past tax returns. Maybe another show. This is where I would recommend talking to the IRS criminal investigator who's now the CPA or attorney. Yeah. This is something that's typically beyond my scope. Okay. You know, okay. I, and I tell people that and I say, you want to talk to this person. Yes. So, yes, exactly. Well, I just, I know a couple of cases where that's happened. So anyway, I'll just throw that out there, but yeah, I just thought I would mention it. So please continue. Yeah. So other documents that you'll see are loan documents, you know, refinancing a mortgage, make sure that all the documentation lines up. Is it your house or is it somebody else's house? You know, what is yeah. the interest rate? What kind of, uh, money back are they going to get? Because sometimes they'll get money back on when you do a refinance ah, and they'll scroll that money away. Good point. Yes. So and that, I also, that's another red flag. Um, I, I also like to mention too, is when you, when you get um, loan docs like this or loan applications, see what they cited as their income, if their income is a big mystery. Right. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's always a good one. You know, and uh, I will tell you right now, some of the best works of fiction I have read are loan documents. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> Again, I wish I didn't know what you were talking about. Oh, but yeah, I, this, a, a lot of things to look out for, like you said, in terms of the red flags list, but and and some of them maybe not so you know, bomb dropping. But when you put them in the context with all the others, you go, oh yeah, exactly. This is a problem. So uh, another red flag is if they have their own PO box or a private mailbox or private safety deposit box. Mm. Yeah, but the reason for this is that usually they're getting bank statements there, they're getting credit card statements there. Once again, they're hiding stuff. Mm. If they have a private um, security box, safety deposit box, you can bet they're hiding stuff, usually cash or jewelry or bonds or something like that. Mm -hmm. If they have a safe in the house, do you have the combination? Yeah. If they won't give you the combination, they're hiding stuff. If they're hiding cash, sometimes guys leave bundles of cash in their pockets. Uh You know? You know, and all of a sudden you're like, huh, here's a bundle of cash. Well, if you find one bundle, you might be finding another and another and another. Sometimes people uh, will hide those around the house using what are called diversion safes. A diversion safe is nothing more than an everyday object that appears to be just the everyday object, like a can of shaving cream or a can of tire foam or an electrical outlet that really is a safe. In other words, it's used for hiding stuff in. 
in my presentation, as a matter of fact, I showed images of a Barbasol shaving can, a thing of Morton salt, uh, an electrical outlet. Uh, books are always a good one, you know, when you sure. cut out the pages partially. And there was a tire foam can. One area that I like to point out is that if they're hiding gold, uh, you know, gold, of course, is metallic. It's actually easily discoverable using metal detectors. So they may be hiding it in the backyard. They may be hiding it in the house. But the one I like to point out is what if you have a chain link fence? It is so easy to put the gold in something, you know, like a mesh bag or something, take the cap off the post of the chain link fence uh-huh. using fishing line and a hook, just slide the gold down into the uh, post and then put the cap back with the hook on the outside. So because you don't presumably, really notice it. yeah, the fence is setting off the metal detector, not, not the gold. Well, you have seen exactly. it all, James. Oh my God. You have seen it all. Wow. Well, I read a lot too, so. (laughs) You know what's interesting about that? This actually, believe it or not, goes hand in hand with um, some stocking conversations I've had, and I'll tell you why. Post-separation, right, a whole slew of other sort of abuses kick in, one of them being financial abuse. Mm -hmm. And this, on all of this, fits into financial abuse uh, category. But we will see behaviors kick into gear that didn't necessarily take place during the marriage, but now that they're in this fight, you know, with the big, this big divorce, now they're willing to do all these crazy things that you would never cross your mind. And so, yeah, there could be a right. diversion <laughs> safe somewhere around your house, even though maybe during your marriage, it's something they wouldn't have done. But, you know, yeah, now there's a GPS tracker on your car. They would have ne- never done it now, but now they're trying to either, you know, whatever the reason is. So it sort of fits right. into that post-separation category of behaviors that you might want to consider, even if you didn't think so during the marriage. But there's still more red flags, believe it or not. (laughs) Oh, I believe it. I believe Um, it. Go, go. Let us have them. uh, One of the other ones is usually uh, a more common thing is to have a PayPal or a Venmo account. You know, a lot of people have those. I have them because I have business and we all pay for them. But if they have a PayPal or a Venmo account, maybe they're doing things on it that uh, you don't know Mm. because, of course, they're hiding that from you, you know. Of course, you'll find out about it by looking at credit card statements or debit card, you know, bank statements saying PayPal or Venmo, in which case, guess who you get to subpoena? PayPal, Venmo. Okay. Find out what they're doing. Gambling is usually a big problem. Uh, and you can uncover a lot of that. I had uh, one case where I think the husband blew like $90,000 close to it in two years. I'm just like, wow, how do you gamble that much? I, I, and I'm not a gambler. Right. No, and I, I, it's hard for me to wrap my head around that too. I am not either, but you're right. I mean, clearly there's a problem, addiction, whatever it is, but I mean, 90,000. Mm-hmm. And I've heard worse and I'm sure yeah. you have too. And you can usually find that out by looking through bank statements uh, because you'll see cash withdrawals or ATM withdrawals at an address. And you look up the address on Google and sure enough, it's a casino or it's across the street from a casino or something okay. like that. And uh, in a case like that, what you do is you subpoena the casino. Most casinos are owned by tribe. Many attorneys are hesitant because the tribe could be, you know, is considered a sovereign nation. Uh, well, the tribes also know that they want to keep people happy. So for the most part, they will respond with production. That's a good point. So, yeah, I hadn't really know, thought attor- of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the attorney that I was dealing with was like, well, I don't know if I can serve them. I'm like, uh, yeah, you can just just do it. And just do we got it. back a lot of interesting stuff. They, my attitude is always issue a subpoena if you can. It costs $200, $300, $400. And this is a really important thing. When you're dealing with a high conflict divorce case with a financially dominant partner who is hiding stuff, you cannot be penny wise and pound foolish. Yep. You have to spend 
the money. You have to say, I have to find out what's there so that you can get your fair share. And I'm not talking taking 90,000 or 90% of your ex's uh, income, because that's not fair. But yes, getting that 50%, yeah. And if they're hiding it from you, you know, the courts do not like it when people commit perjury. They don't like it when they basically try to hide stuff. Nope, they don't. Another red flag, of course, is toys. I'm talking expensive toys. (laughs) Oh, look at this boat I just bought. I'm in a midlife crisis and I deserve this and I worked hard for this. They may buy a whole bunch of toys with the purpose of tying up that property so they can turn around and sell it later. Well, of course, as we mentioned, SIDS, sudden income deficit syndrome when it comes to their businesses. If all of a sudden that business tanks and the economy is doing fine and they're just as busy as ever, they're lying. Uh-huh. Flat out. You know, I, I see too many people who try and say, oh, business is down. Now, if 2020 was an exceptional year. I mean, let's face it, the times of COVID really impacted a lot of businesses. Uh, if it's a restaurant, hugely impacted. Uh, a lot of retail uh, got impacted, sure. you know, but there are certain businesses that were not impacted. Home Depot, mm-hmm. a lot of uh, construction was not, you know, that kind of construction services was not. Right. You have to take into account, number one, what happened during the times of COVID. Number two, what's the norm? And number three, what are they claiming? You know, if they're hiding it, they're usually taking money in cash. And once again, getting back to that whole lifestyle uh, analysis, you know, it's like if you can show, show their lifestyle hasn't changed, but they say they have no money. Where's that money coming from? Yeah. The courts don't look kindly on that. And I know you're going to ask about this one, but if they incorporate a business in Delaware or Las Vegas, <laughs> you have a problem. Yeah. You know, for the most part, the only reason one incorporates a business and it's typically a limited liability company right. is to prevent people from knowing that they own the company. Yep. They will have an agent, you know, usually an attorney or a registered agent yes. who will be listed with the company on the secretary of state's website. And that's all, you know, but if you find that company, you can still subpoena that company. The problem is that your subpoena from California might not be observed in Delaware or in Nevada. So can so that be that a dead case, end? Actually, no, 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 not at all. What you can do is uh, work with an attorney from Nevada or from Delaware and actually have them get a court order and a subpoena to give up all the names and information and everything that you need from the <sighs> registered agent. Okay. Okay. That is really good to know. That's a great, great yeah. piece of advice. Okay. Uh, but that's just advice. I don't know how well that works because I haven't had that happen yet. Okay. You know, just to give you an idea. I've had one potential case where the husband actually did have a business in Nevada, but it wasn't an LLC. And so I was able to actually identify it okay. through the Secretary of State. But yeah, so that's the route I would recommend doing. For example, like the Canadian one that I have, we actually have to go to a Canadian barrister and request that they go through their court system to get a subpoena because the bank has flatly told us, we don't recognize your subpoena. Go away. Uh, those are the steps that are necessary uh, okay. and can be taken You know, to hopefully uncover who they are. Okay. You know, the state doesn't have to give you the information. If you have a subpoena against the registered agent, yes, you know, they're required to. Another big red flag is that if you see a lot of traveling taking place, specifically to Las yes. Vegas or to some of those wonderful overseas places like the Cayman Islands, right. um, Panama. But there are a number of countries 
that are actually very good for money laundering because they maintain private bank records. And I even stumbled on a few attorneys who flat out say, I'll help you hide your money. (laughs) So, And I learned a lot from those websites. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've got the travel, you've got the travel expenses that are taking place. I mean, one case I had, I saw them going to the Bahamas. One of the things that they're required to do if they have a foreign bank account is report that to the IRS Mm. if the value is over $10,000. So once again, if we find a foreign bank account, now you've got them uh, over a barrel because now you're saying, you know what, I'm just going to go to the IRS and report this to you, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, have fun with your criminal attorney. Yeah, yeah. And I know in many cases, the goal is not to get the spouse put away in prison. The goal is to get a fair and equitable settlement. Sure. One thing one has to remember when dealing with anything with the IRS, you signed a joint filing, you are just as liable as the spouses who did the activity. Right. Until you take corrective action to helpfully get out of that. Yeah. Talk to your CPA who who either was with the IRS or has worked with this kind of thing before you write and start to have those talks about how you can, if you can protect yourself. Exactly. You had mentioned in the presentation I saw, is that still true today? I know they've been trying to tighten laws around this. You know, it's, you know, the famous country you go to to hide your money. Um, are those laws really working? Uh, they are in some degree. Yeah. Because if the U.S. government requests the information, they turn it over. If you're going through a divorce case, Eh, you know, I don't know to what degree they would be willing to play with mm. you in that regard. Okay. Once things leave the United States, it becomes tricky, yeah. is the best I can say. I want to talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about looking at uh, bank and credit card statements and tax returns. When you've got bank or credit card statements and you actually have access to them, one of the things you want to do is take a look at any unusual activity. The first thing being, of course, a lot of cash withdrawals. Uh, the second one, of course, is casinos, because that's where money's going. And the thing about casinos is that people don't just lose money, they sometimes win, although never to the degree that they lose. And when they win money, uh, if it's over $600, you're going to see, you know, a W2G produced or a 1099 and they're issued to that person. Okay. Those will be on file. So they should be part of your taxes, but sometimes you won't uh, see them because they hide it. Sure. Once again, here, sign this document real quick. Another one to look at is pawn shop. And, uh, you know, when people go, why a pawn shop? Because where do you think they sell a lot of jewelry and gold? You know, you want to put your money uh. into those fungible assets that you can, you know, conceal, carry, hide, and take away. Uh, jewelry stores, of course. Uh, if you happen to see purchases from a uh, numismatic shop, a, a shop that does nothing but sell coins. Oh. You know, that's a good one. I don't know of any firearms that have ever lost value. Right. Firearms hold their value. And nowadays, if you can buy a firearm and an ammo, wow, you know, we have, we have a joke in the community, which is the new way of showing the new riches to be able to afford plywood and nine millimeter ammunition, just because both of them are incredibly expensive right now. Yeah. You know, people aren't shooting just for fun. If they're purchasing cryptocurrency, that will be show up because there are ATM machines that you can actually go to and buy cryptocurrency. I have noticed you know, I that lately when I've been at an ATM machine and I'm like, I don't even know what to do yeah. with that. I'm too <laughs> I've noticed yeah, it. And cryptocurrency is just one of those, I kind of view it as a scam. Some people view it as an alternative currency to hide from the government. But everybody's got their own opinion. But the fact is that cryptocurrency exists. People are purchasing it. Mm. It is a way to hide money. And there are people who put out digital cryptocurrency that people think they're buying and 
spam. It's a scam. I so, guess that's the downside you know, of, it, of even if you be, really believe in cryptocurrency, I guess that's the downside because if it's hidden and there's no way to trace it, then if you steal it, there's no way to get it back. A couple other things to look at are uh, lingerie and art stores, lingerie yeah, stores and art studios. At lingerie. Why lingerie? They're not giving the lingerie to their spouse. They have a lover on the side. Sure. And if they're doing that, they may be using that lover to hide their money. Okay. Interesting. Got it. So, and of course, art studios, you invest in art. I mean, if you were to have bought a David Hockney art piece, you know, 30, 40 years ago, how much yep. would it be worth now? Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine. You know, um, yeah. So, and another one is to look for uh, numbers that end in the digit zero. Yes. This was fascinating to me. Please go ahead. I love this. Generally speaking, if you buy anything with the exception of New Hampshire and a couple of other uh, states, there's always a sales tax. And so that $1 item is usually $1.09 or $1.04 or $1.07. It doesn't end in zero. So when you see a whole lot of zeros, usually that's ATM withdrawals or they're hiding the money somehow. Look for those and look for the large withdrawals or transfers. Uh, And that's always fun. I worked one fraud case. This was an elder fraud case where I had to try and track the transfers between, I want to say it was four different accounts Mm. where money was coming out of the elder client's account going into his quote unquote caretaker's account mm. and then moving into another account that the caretaker had and then sometimes moving back to the elderly patient. So I'm trying to track all these things. One case I just wrapped up, it was like the guy was transferring funds between three banks, about six different accounts. Part of what I was trying to do there was determine was there income coming in or was he just transferring funds between accounts that would look like income? And I had to break that down and say, correlate the withdrawals from one account into deposits into another account. What I can't correlate is this $2,800 cash deposit into the account with no subsequent or prior withdrawal from another account. Okay. And now I'm saying, no, he just had this bunch of income that's unaccounted for. You want to look at this on all, uh, both personal and business stuff. And the business stuff, you want to go a little further. You want to look at the expenses and purchases, make sure they're all legitimate. And this is the stuff the accountant should do. And for all intents and purposes, this is what a forensic accountant can do, not just the certified fraud examiner or the CFF. They can look at those expenses and purchases and tell them, find out which ones are going to real companies and which ones are not and who owns those companies. Uh, You definitely want to look at tax returns. And if you filed jointly, believe it or not, you can actually get the IRS copies just by going to the IRS website and putting in a request for the IRS form 4506 if you're a joint filer on the tax. And that will give you everything. And so let me ask you on that topic. So say you do have someone that owns a lot of LLCs with other business partners. And there is, for those people that don't know this out there, there are one form called a K-1, right? That goes along with Mm -hmm, your tax returns. And so there may be um, multiple K-1s. Do you get copies of the K-1s when you request the tax returns? You're just going to get a printout of line by line. You're not going to get a copy of your tax return. Sure. Okay. Um, and uh, in, in typical government formatting and fonting. Sure. <laughs> yes. Right. Right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, K-1 should be included with all of the businesses tax right. filings, which you should be able to get through the subpoena process. Right. You know, right. The IRS is not going to give you a business tax return unless you are the member owner of that business. Okay. And even a subpoena, they'll just say, go pound sand. It's just really good to know all of the things that you can do on your own. And I will even tell clients just on a top line, if you want to know right off the bat, just just the round numbers, the big numbers, you can go to irs.gov as well, open your own, you know, account. And as long as your social security number's on it, you can get the brief, you know, just of like the last right. four years, I think it is of your tax return. Let me ask you, James, are you for hire? Like what, what's your situation right now? People listen to this and they're like putting you on speed dial. 
Is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Um, I have cases that are constantly opening and closing. And one of the things I like to tell my clients is this is not going to be a fast case. This is going to take a minimum of a one to four or five months. Mm -hmm. And the reason being is that there's a lot of lag time when we're issuing subpoenas and I'm getting stuff back and everything like that. But usually when I finally get everything in, I can start going through the process and that takes a couple of days to actually go through it. I actually have a software program that allows me to convert all bank statements into an Excel spreadsheet so I can do my analysis. Where it used to take me 45 minutes per statement and a total of nine hours per year, I'm now doing multiple years in the time frame of about an hour, wow. which really saves the clients a lot of money. Oh, yes. Um, because you will find that most CFEs, most investigative accountants or forensic accountants charge anywhere from $150 to $500 an hour. Yes. And this all adds up. Yeah, as it relates to my availability, it's on again, off again if I'm available. Uh, if not, I have contacts that I can advise people with. Looking for specifically a CFE, you can go to acfe.com okay. and look under one of their links on find a CFE. And you can do this by state. Once again, you know, if you're hiring a fraud investigator and it depends on what they're doing, you might want to have somebody who actually has a private investigator license. And I know in California, you're required to have one if you're going to be looking into financial matters, if you're not a CPA okay, or a CPA who is a CFF or CFE. You do not want to just hire somebody who is a quote unquote forensic accountant because they may not understand all the intricacies involved in fraud. I mean, personally, I think that one of the best types of people to hire would be somebody who is a CPA with a CFE who has been in law enforcement. That is great because you know, th that advice is gold. Yeah. Well, you know, that's our purpose here is to train the uh, public on fraud. You just don't understand, you know, the, the inside scoop of what they really need to know. And so if you just go interview friends, get accounts, they're going to say, yes, of course you look at tax returns. You can't hide anything. Everybody thinks they can hide anything. They can't, but it's just so much more complicated than that in a lot of cases. <laughs> If they can't hide it, why does the IRS have a criminal investigation division? <laughs> Thank you. Oh my gosh. I love that. That's so true. I had gone to different attorneys and laid out scenarios and they said, well, the only way so-and-so would get away with that. I mean, they'd have to be really good at X, Y, and Z. And my answer was always, they're really good at X, Y, and Z. So now what do I do? You know, and, and, and I would just get deer in the headlights and no one gave me this advice, James. No one's talked talk to me about fraud and, you know, examiners. No, I mean, in three years. It just, it part just of that is a complete ignorance on, on the part of the legal system on certified fraud examiners. Uh, yeah. They just, I mean, if you were to go into a court, the witness is a CPA. Well, everybody knows what a CPA is. Mm -hmm. But if I say I'm a CFE, oh, what does that mean? And, and the funny thing is, I sit there, I have a PhD, a master's, a bachelor's degree. I'm a certified fraud examiner. I've been through two mm -hmm. law enforcement academies. I am much more knowledgeable in fraud and fraud investigations than any CPA is. Thank you so much, James. This has been so valuable. Again, as I told you, I wish I had known a lot of this information before I started, and it's going to be so valuable to my clients. And I know all of my colleagues that know you and have had the a pleasure of listening to your presentations really value it. So thank you for coming on today so we can just sort of spread the word on how to get these things done. No, my pleasure, Jackie. Yeah, it's uh, like I said, the role of the CFE is to not only investigate fraud, but to educate the public about it. And awesome. any chance we have of being able to do that, we're happy. Fantastic.
James P. Is it P. Associates? That P-E-E-T associates.com if anyone wants to jump on and check out his website. And thank you so much, James. Hopefully I'll talk to you soon. Uh, my pleasure, Jackie. You have a great one. Okay, you too. Hi, this is Jackie Miller. Thank you so much for joining me on Out of Crazy Town, your guide to divorcing a narcissist. Hey, go visit my website at JackieMillerCoaching.com. Click on the shop page and buy your power statement workbook. This is a workbook and video that will walk you through how to build your power statement. This is a fantastic tool if you are going through a custody evaluation or writing a declaration or even getting ready to go to court. This power statement will help you present to court professionals such as custody evaluators, judges, even your own attorney so that you can tell your truth and unmuddy the waters as to who the real high conflict person is in your case. Go ahead and put in podcast 10 to get a 10% discount off your workbook. Thank you again for joining me.